Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of our healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Rosie goncha Golson about borderline personality disorder from a counseling psychologist perspective. Rosie Concha Gulson, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about borderline personality disorder from a counseling psychologist perspective. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me here. It's, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, the pleasure is always ours. I mean, meeting amazing people like yourself and you out of, you said out of the UK in Yorkshire? Yeah, I I am studying in Yorkshire at the moment, um, and I'm also um, doing a doctorate and also doing practices and like placement. So yeah, I'm in the UK right now. Okay, that sounds like quite a busy life actually, <laughs> with lots of things going on. Yeah, it's sometimes really hard to find time. Mm, yeah, it's nice to do something which is helpful to people and myself, like. Mm most of it i think yeah so i mean uh, it makes me appreciate even more you know your time you know doing this with us um so i think let's go into it i mean um so i think we you know obviously we have an outline but we uh you know we want to go through the topic of personal uh, or borderline personality disorder so in your words rosie would you be able to tell us what that is yeah um, borderline personality disorder is usually emotional unstable personality disorder so it actually starts off in like earlier ages and it's um gets better with age like the research shows but it's like they experience a lack of sense um of themselves and they experience strong emotions compared to other people and they tend to feel very empty and self some of them do self self-harming not necessarily all of them but like they are really afraid of abandonment the people who suffer from borderline personality disorder so for example if they're in a relationship even like a smallest thing like if somebody wanted to go to some other city they might feel abandoned and then they might, might act very um impulsively um so i think it's more about impulse and unstability um and lack of self um okay. and sometimes it might cause the detachment from reality even because i think it's like it shifts the per- perception of the, of people who suffer from it okay and would you, would you say it's like i mean uh is someone like that a lot more clingy i know you said attachment is that another word that that normally comes to mind yeah i think uh, based on the theory they tend to have um like um usually they tend to have a fearful avoidant attachment style so it's like um, they want to get attached but they are so scared of abandonment that it's also relates to the object theory like in early ages so once the baby uh, sees an object usually they um connect to the object whereas with borderline personality disorder they don't feel uh, very um comfortable with their like they don't really have that normal bond with their parents so once they're out of the room or once an object is out of sight like an object permanency you feel like it's already gone whereas it actually is still there so with borderline personality disorder uh, it's like 
they really afraid from atta being attached, but they also want to be attached. So once they're attached, it actually causes the inner conflict. And that actually leads to self-sabotage. For example, if they're really in a loving relationship, they might perceive everything as they are being abandoned. So they might just reject that relationship right away at the start, like when everything is fine, which causes another distress. Or maybe if, for example, they're like very young and they their dad or mother said no to something and they might have like anger outbursts, very reactive because they feel really rejected and abandoned about that. Mm, okay. I think with all of these things, especially in the mental health space, is that there's a fine difference between like, you know, where it's almost normal and then where it becomes, you know, more disorder, you know, where it becomes a lot more uh, and it affects your life. Uh, because I think some of those things that you mentioned, I mean, I suppose most people can, you know, like relate to it, but I think where it starts affecting their their lives to a huge extent, then it becomes a problem. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think there is like mainly um, um, diagnosis criteria, like uh, you said, it's like if it gets too severe, because all of us really scare for, from them, for uh, from abandonment to some extent, or maybe being left alone. But if, for example, there are frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, so it's, or if there is like um, impulsive and reckless behavior for example a lot of drinking and substance use also this could happen like very young age and reckless driving like binge eating or maybe even like suicidal in ideation and chronic feeling on emptiness and like very intense anger then it becomes problematic like if you somebody has actually five of these criteria by dsm5 there are nine criteria but if they have like five of them then that gets really problematic and diagnostic but in the uk uh, we i uh, in the in our doctorate program they told us that um, until they're 18 we don't tend to diagnose it here um because it's like actually kind of laboring from a, a counseling psychologist perspective so we tend to do the best um till um not like we kind of avoid diagnosing like clinical psychologists do but in other parts of the world like actually um for example us uh, according to dsm it's acceptable to diagnose emerging B bpd like um, borderline personality disorder even there under 18 um it could be diagnosable but i think it's a bit more discouraged uh, from a counseling psychology point of view and based on the uk system um and because also it gets better with age that the research shows that could be also really helpful but also therapy could be really needed because there are some severe cases so this could get really problematic for some people and then therapy is also needed at that point. Um, Thanks so much for saying that. I mean, uh, I mean, I think that gives us really good context, especially from a UK perspective. And I think, is there any merit or is there any um, advantage to having that diagnosis? I mean, uh, and, and, and I think what I'm asking from that is, I mean, if you get the diagnosis, just say as a teenager, right, um, does it help you? to get a lot more health care, you know, so like, is it easier then to get care from, from other practitioners? Or is it just that you know, that's why the diagnosis makes sense? 
I think um, some of the people usually in all of those um, mental health difficulties, they they get to be like there is like a secondary game which our supervisors kind of warned us about because sometimes actually the clients are in the therapy because they uh, like like they want the attachment they want to have an attachment and they cannot find it in their caregivers or they actually um want to some of them even unconditional like um without realizing it um they kind of want a secondary gain so it's really um, important to be mindful of that um i think because it's a very troubling situation usually um there is like a I don't think there is one um, which is like a secondary game for under 18s because they're not eligible. Um, but if they're like, if somebody is like um, older than 18 and has very severe difficulties, there are some secondary gains as in like maybe they could provide a householding because some of them cannot keep jobs or might get pensions or like, um, I mean, more like profits um, from government or they might... Um, feel even the attachment like the attachment they create with their um i think counselors they that gives them an attachment and then that's when it gets problematic because people usually with um, who suffer from bpd they don't want to uh, work through the goals they just usually want to be attached and they don't want to leave the therapy um so then it could get traumatic when they want to um, they need to actually leave the service once they start to get better because they feel abundant so a couple of books actually has some um client cases and uh, stating that it's really hard to end therapy sessions with B people with bpd because it, it, almost all of the endings are quite hard but even with bpd it's harder um because clients don't want to leave that attachment that's really secure and also, in a way, it's healthy for them, but also it doesn't help them in the long run. It's um, it's very complicated that I think um, emotional um, unstable disorders um, to work through a goal. So they created some actually like dialectical behavior therapy and more like schema therapy um, for the for those client groups, um, which is really helpful because. For for example, with DP, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, it's like a group setting. And so they the individuals learn skills in a group um, and they learn how to manage their emotions and tolerating the stress. And also they learn how to improve their relationships. So it's more like interpersonal. Mm. Um, and then they might feel less abundant when um, it ends because they they get taught that skills they develop a friendship like they connections in the group which is a bit more different than just the therapist having just one person in the room um and it's really helpful because it has like mindfulness in it and um other skill practices mm -hmm. yeah which is really cool i mean it's like a proper coping skills you know coping mechanisms so they they're learning something that's tangible you know that they can take through life which is quite nice. Um, do you find the opposite though, Rosie? Do you find, I mean, you, you spoke about like attachment, you know, like the, you know, when they have to leave, do you find like with like patients being able to attach initially, does, is there a lot more uh, trust involved or you know, is there anything around the first, you know, like when they first start therapy, is it a lot more difficult to gain their trust? Yeah, actually um, we, um, 
I read a lot of papers about this and it's really interesting because um, lots of research says it's actually the therapy is actually about therapeutic relationship and therapeutic trust. So without ex establishing that and it's almost impossible to keep up um, with the client in good terms and like getting the client to kind of improve change, maybe like making life better for them. It's impossible if there is not trust so we were um it's like all, almost all of the research shows that it's really important to get that trust and get that relationship going but also depending on the client's needs like there are almost like five different um therapeutic relationships so if for example if um someone has bpd usually it's more like or if they lack attachment, their attention in their childhood, it's more like the parental figure. So they tend to see the, they want to kind of connect to the client in more like a parental level. Um, whereas with some other client group, it's different. But it's like in the first two sessions, it's really important also from a counseling psychologist perspective to show empathy and listening to them, like showing unconditional positive regard and um, like congruence. So these are like the Rogerian principles. So we actually tend to, I think, in counseling psychology, really empathize with client. And we kind of believe that it, the therapeutic relationship makes the work. Like once it's established, actually, that's what kind of makes everything better for the client and reinforces them to change by themselves rather than like giving direct diagnosis or advice Um I think it's really important. Um, but yeah, I think it's harder to connect at the start, even like this client group, they find it even harder. Mm. But I think parental style, like a, a therapeutic uh, relationship and being honest and empathetic to the client with Roger principles. Um, I think it's um, it could be achieved, but also it's really important to keep in mind the cultural aspects. Um, for example, some clients could be from other part of the country or from, from like maybe refugee groups. So it's also really important to see how it could affect the therapeutic relationship and maybe getting a sense of the client's background before if she or he was referred from another service or their cultural aspect and reading about it and making sure it's ethical, like everything is ethical while working with them. Um, Mm, okay, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that sounds good. I, I think for many of those patients, I mean, I could be guessing, but you know, it's also like a, an example of maybe a, a stable, mature relationship, you know, that between therapist and patient. So it's obviously, you know, they probably, yeah, they obviously learn something from that from a skills point of view. Is that does that make sense as well? Um, yeah, I think it makes sense because it's really important to teach them uh, positive skills with mm -hmm. BPD. So with also shim focused therapy, um, it's also like it can also be individual based and a group, um, which is a bit different than dialectical behavior therapy. But it's also about to identify unmet needs that leads to negative life patterns or maybe teaching them helpful survivor strategies. Mm. So. Mm. It's like um, it focuses on helping their needs are met in a healthy manner and like in a more promoting positive life patterns. So like it's actually skills based, like uh, if they feel hurt, if they feel rejected, uh, for example, they they learn to how to practice mindfulness and um, other kind of skills that could help them. And then they 
with the shim therapy they um there is like actually actual cpt courses on that but mainly they learn to how their childhood shims and like like learnings lead to thinking in a way uh, which is harmful like it's actually like a cbt but it's mm. not a cbt um so they learn to find out that negative life patterns and spotting them and then how to make it a positive life pattern like how to change it to be more positive and i think without being judgmental and being there for the client it's it's really good for them like it really feels them like they're accepted but uh, if they have like um free for attachment uh, style it's really even a bit harder to get their trust and get them into therapy therapeutic trust um so i think that's why the group therapies like dbt could be really helpful um mm. for this group and they learn how to do interpersonal effectiveness distress tolerance and emotional regulation with mindfulness in dbt so it's like actually for um different skills group and mm. both individually and like also like in a group um they could practice it later on okay. uh, yeah that sounds really cool like like we said and then uh, i think we when we prepared as well we said um um is there like a test or i mean i know you mentioned dsm5 now which is really cool uh, and the five aspects is that how you would normally determine whether someone has personality disorder uh yeah mm -hmm. or not or borderline yeah. sorry no borderline personality disorder yeah actually there is like a test for scoring the bpd level like it's um the msi um bpd test um but also like in in the uk they tend to we tend to do like um if the gp for example suspects um any depression or unstability they first find out if it's depression or not and if not then they refer them to the clients to the community mental health teams and uh, which are um, more like specialists in that area in personality disorders so there is actually like um small um sheet which has like questions um so if they say five yes to five of the, them that questions um, then they do usually have bpd um so they they have like questions like do you have a long term of emptiness or loneliness feelings or do you have a pattern of intense and unstable relationships? Um, or if you ever have, um, feel you don't not have a, a strong sense of yourself and unclear self-image, or if they engage on drug misuse, reckless spending, or self-harming, or mood swings. So, and there is like this McLean screening instrument um, test with like the MSI, which I mentioned. Mm. It's also like a 10 item measurement, which is like more, I think more US and more technical one. Um, so it's like, if they say, get yeah, a score from like from zero to 10, if they get seven, it's generally an indication of a criteria for BPD diagnosis. Um, okay. It also has like some questions like similar, um, but it's more like a, um, I think more like research-based test, whereas the other one is also research-based, but it's more like a simple, basic uh, kind of test. But both of them are really accurate in, uh, I think, finding out if somebody could have BPD. Um, mm. 
I'm actually not familiar with those. Um, so the MSI, I haven't come across that before with practitioners as well. So is that a common test uh, for um, in the UK or is it a common test throughout the world? It's a throughout the world test, actually. Like it's okay. used everywhere. Um, but I think uh, in the UK, um, the first thing we should tend to use is this um, test, um, the one with a, a like internationally recognized criteria a test which I um, talked really about so if they say five to any of those questions which is actually uh, the some of them are like usually they, they are based on the DSM criteria so nine of the criteria if you say yes to five of them then they get diagnosed um, so it's both of them are actually internationally recognized tests mm-hmm. um, but I think one of them is a bit simpler so it's both of them is really accurate and uh, probably the um international recognized criteria one is simpler to use so it's more straightforward um, mm, yeah. that tends to be used more in this community mental health team um as i'm also like um having a placement in community mental health team right now as a part of my doctorate course okay. um, yeah okay. yeah that's actually really cool i mean I, lo- I love the fact that you have that experience i think for for i would have always heard um you know especially from uh, healthcare practitioners in South Africa, where we originated, was um, you know it's normally the DSM five, and then obviously they they looking at the criteria there. But I haven't heard anyone mention that particular test. Maybe they do it. Maybe I haven't asked the question in a much more pointed fashion. But um, you mentioned something else, though, Rosie. The DP. Who who is that? So. Oh, sorry. Which one? The DP. Uh, so the normally the DP does the diagnosis. Or the sorry, I I meant GP. Sorry, like general practitioner. Uh, okay, GP. Okay, sorry, sorry, my my bad. Yeah, yeah. so GP would normally pres- okay so start the process. That makes sense. I think yeah, that's, they that's for kind of community health team usually uh, in the yeah. UK. They suspect mm. it. Okay, um, that yes. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, um, and typical treatment for borderline personality disorder. So assuming that. You know, they obviously went through the initial screening process, you know, the assessment came back. Uh, mm. What happens from there? Uh, treated with psychotherapy, like such as like cognitive behavior or dialectical behavior therapy. And sometimes medication is used, like if um, it cannot be really cured and it's really severe, um, like quetiapine or SSRIs, like antidepressants are widely used in that case because then um they are actually good for mood stabilization um because quetiapine is actually like um, antipsychotic but it can also use for major depressive disorders or bipolar which is kind of similar as in the outset of like because bipolar is actually more like um based on the brain functions but it's actually very similar with bpd some of the symptoms like um, so it's a similar medication and sometimes like very severe cases needs hospital care um, but it's like less common and um, therapy of BPD for BPD can occur in one-to-one and also in a group se- group setting and DBT really based on um, the empirical research DBT is the found the most um, effective um type of therapy for BPD, like borderline personality disorder, and it may reduce the risk of suicide in this disorder. So this is like 
the therapy which is actually the best fit um, based on the research for dbt um okay cool i mean i, I think that makes a lot of sense i mean uh, and i suppose you know the therapy aspects you know we covered you did get my interest going with the with what you said earlier though it seems to get better with age and is there a reason for that or is it just that people start learning coping skills and they get better with relationships i'm kind of guessing or coming from that angle but is there a reason why it gets better um there there is like um i i think it's like two research articles uh, that publish that that say it gets better with age around also 25 like it's getting better and better and also i think one of the reasons they say with 25 um actually um the part of our like one of the uh, areas in our brain changes so like emotional regulation becomes to be like it becomes to be better processed and uh, so they say suspect one of the reasons could be that and also i think um with aging one of the papers were suggesting that we kind of learn how to be attached more securely and with like getting skills um more like using them efficiently and if they get therapy then it gets better and with i think adolescence the research was saying it gets even worse because um some of the criteria is actually uh, like not that severe but experienced in adolescence by all of us to a little bit not that big of an extent but just at least a little bit so if they have bpd it's really tops up with that adolescence period and then um it's it's really the research shows it's really um is very intense in ad adolescence um but it settles after 25 and maybe gets better with age like that was what the research said um yeah yeah and one research was saying actually it needs to be re researched further um the reasons so that was why I actually i wanted to do another research about this for my phd in like as a second uh, research actually because i'm currently doing a research about bpd and dbt okay that's nice. Yeah. I, I suppose that's even more the reason why the diagnosis at an early age is is difficult or, or problematic because, I mean, it is, as you said, with adolescence, you know, they already, I mean, it's already going to be heightened and, you know, it's, yeah, so I can kind of see the problems with that. Um, and in terms of the... I mean, you, we covered the typical treatment. I think we covered symptoms. Um, we covered, you know, the diagnosis, I suppose, you know, as a teenager. But I, I mean, I'll, I'll be correct in saying, I mean, I don't think you would ever get a diagnosis before, before that uh, time. Yeah, like we were um, during the placement and our training, um, like we are told to really try and avoid diagnosing before 18. Um, but in severe cases, it's um, it could be diagnosed as emerging BPD. Um, and but according to the DSM, which is a US based, based um, manual for psychological disorders, it's actually diagnosable um, before 18 um so uh, but they avoid to not like do that um, as practitioner practitioners and more likely to wait and see how it gets because it also it creates a label in the person um so mm, yeah i know 
according to that's always difficult um perspective um Um, can I ask about the medicines? And I know obviously psychologists can't prescribe them or anything like that. But in the UK, um, like antidepressants and things like that, would do you find that that's? I mean, are there cases where where people take antidepressants for quite some time, and is that normally recommended then by the GP or the psychiatrist? Um, it's usually recommended by. Um, the gp but uh, if it's um like a severe case then they are usually or if the gp cannot decide then they refer to community mental health teams which usually have like a lot of nice like educated psychiatrists like senior psychiatrists and then then we tend to make like in the community mental health team um a more like a mdt like a multidisciplinary team mm-hmm. based meetings so that everybody says what dating like a psychologist and psychiatrist and sometimes even a dietitian because it could be like they might not eat because of depression mm. so all of them come together and find a an a clinical and a counseling psychologist and give opinions mm. and also trainees um and then they come to a agreement like if this medication should be kept the same or should it be changed or if it should be prescribed um so uh, yeah i think it's a gp can actually that um prescribe stuff um like a medication but they usually if it, it's an ongoing problem and if they cannot really maybe dif- maybe not um, i think if depression and anxiety for example it's really hard to say what it uh, what it is about because sometimes it could be something else for example um even with borderline and bipolar disorder sometimes it overlaps so gp is really cannot decide to which one it is um because uh, with bipolar almost all, like lots of the symptoms are same with the borderline personality disorder but it's like more about the brain function um not like interpersonal relationships so mm. it might end up they might end up getting a medication they don't need so usually gps then refer them to community mental health team when it's really complex um and they cannot decide which diagnosis it is about um but if it's like an anxiety problem they usually um give a medication um without usually needing to refer because i think with the also the pressure in nhs it's sometimes really a long wait list so some of the practitioners say um like during this placement i'm doing that sometimes that's why gps don't tend to refer every patient because there is like a year of wait usually and the symptoms might get worse then so they probably also feel like they need to prescribe something to avoid that mm-hmm. um wait time in case something happens when while they're waiting like they're still referred if that's really complex but giving something to make sure they're okay in the meantime okay and is there a concept of like private healthcare i mean i know it's the nhs so so assuming someone is struggling with that and then the gp obviously refers to nhs but is that the only option that a patient has or they can they see someone privately like a psychiatrist privately Yeah actually they can see a psych a psychiatrist or a counseling or clinical psychologist privately too um like it's um is actually a bit faster process because um with um it's like a bit costly but it's also faster because it doesn't have that much of a waiting list um but 
sometimes in some practices like i i, I think uh, for example in yorkshire yeah there is still even if it's like a private one it's like some, usually they are kind of full uh, so it's good to book in advance and checking up with all of them but it, it's uh, usually um faster like it's usually like one month waiting time the most or maybe two but you can always find um private practices like some people have their own practices or some do online zoom sessions now so i guess with also the online sessions coming up it's um a bit maybe easier to access because um, people in different cities now can approach to different areas to get therapy or psychiatrist help um so yeah it's uh, there is a um so, uh, like there is a um, way to do that but some people tend to not because like it's very costly actually um mm. to have sessions um for mm. psychotherapy or psychiatrists um okay. yeah that makes sense i love that i mean uh, i think it's more you know myself just getting into the context of it as well and if uh, and if someone wanted to go down that route where how would they i suppose a gp would refer them right i mean if they said i actually want to see someone privately uh, or yeah, so the GP would normally refer. But is there any other ways that you found, um, maybe through the community mental health team that you mentioned as well? I thought. Yeah, GP usually says like gives suggestions about private practices, but they cannot refer because it's like NHS. The GPs are like usually NHS based, but um, they can actually suggest um, private ones like which are accessible and good and give suggestions but um people can just directly go to a private practice yeah. um the community mental health team is a um, part of the nhs so okay. it's like um the gp like the nhs gp refers okay. but the waiting list depends on the area for example for yorkshire it's not that much but it depends um sometimes it's two months sometimes it's three months but in other areas i was told that it's one or two years hmm. um so it's a, it really depends on also the region of the UK and mm, uh, mm. And, uh, to the services. Um, but lots of the reasons people tend to not go to private ones is um, because it's really costly, like mm. it's, it's a very expensive. So they, they usually need a lot of sessions to improve clients with complex cases. Um, and the... And the health insurance companies like Bupa and Vitality, do they not pay for some of those sessions? Um, yeah. I think that some of them do like a private insurance companies, but yeah. um, I think it depends on the registration. Um, and um, some of them, I guess some of them don't. But I guess if it's like a private practice, like if it's just one person's practice, they probably don't tend to do that. Whereas if it's like a private um, place, like uh, more like a clinic, um, mm -hmm. I think there are some charities also, uh, which people go to like mind and um, changing lives and other places. Mm -hmm. So they tend to sometimes pay depending on the insurance company. Um, but I guess if it's like a very private practice, they tend to not do that. Like if it's just one person's, um, thing and usually because now online therapy became more uh, known uh, some people really tend to do their own sessions mm -hmm. um, so that's maybe where it kind of also is very helpful but also in a way it's a bit um, less accessible as in getting more costly and um, yeah. 
Yeah. I was just thinking from, from a cost point of view, you know, like for the patient, you know, how would they, like you said, I mean, it is costly. I just wondered if, um, you know, if the health insurance companies like Bupa, you know, would normally pay for that, you know, whether it was an online session or, you know, it wasn't even in a clinic, it was just a, you know, counseling psychologist in private practice, you know, that was seeing the person or a clinical psychologist. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, maybe more research on our side as well, just to see how that works. Yeah, uh, I think, um, yeah, I'll check it in more detail, but um, I guess it's like uh, usually what people say is sometimes um, companies like um, tend to help, but for some reasons they just uh, say no or do a lot of checks beforehand. So some people find it a bit difficult to get um, help, like, mm. um, but with NHS, uh, because it's like free and mm. it's... Um, really good um i guess for a lot of people it's just mm. the pressure is like very high and also it depends like private some private practices are um like registered to be pps like british psychological society and a, 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 the council of um the hcpc um the um healthcare professionals council in the yeah. uk yeah. so if they are registered to that then um it's like more recognized and um some people tend to go to maybe counselors um like clinical psychologists who are recognized with the with dead bodies um whereas some also like uh, counselors might not choose to do that but usually jobs make it a requirement to register with bps even mm. for like applying for a doctorate or being a, becoming a trainee yes here professional council later on um and it's like actually those councils are also good to help people find maybe colleagues or client groups and also like having more like a research-based approaches and people could read about it and connect and it's i think it's also a good practice for clients so they could look at the bps website and find which support they could get from their area um so there is like a counselor's list they could find and even like supervisors, like if somebody is a trainee, they could find a supervisor on that website. Um, and I think it's really nice to also register with them. And that could also probably um, make the process better, like with Uber or if they want to get um, support or government support, um, like benefits with this process and i think nhs is also good at that like if somebody really has a severe problem they usually get benefits or like a place to stay or pensions like depending on their ages and severity of the problem um yeah and so yeah, i think it's uh, quite helpful mm. i think that's a, that's the amazing thing about the uk is you yeah. know the, the government programs that you have you know see it with um you know, with the schooling system, you know, the same schools, I see it, you know, like, uh, even with the older people, you know, the amount of benefits, you know, that seems to be available. You know, that's really, really nice. That's, uh, it shows you that. And I think what I was asking as well is that if you knew what the, you know, the avenues are, obviously, you can get the right help. I like this idea of the MDT teams, you know, the multidisciplinary teams in the community mental health, you know, teams, that's actually really cool. 
because I mean, to be able to have access to professionals like that, you know, obviously is a really good thing. So um, yeah, that's yeah. really nice. There is actually also like a Champs team, which is for child and adolescent mental health services. It's also based on NHS, so it's um all um depends on like it's a um, um public and it's like um government based um stuff and it supports young people experiencing full mental health um, or difficult feelings and experiences so they can work with um champs could work with schools um and charities and local authorities so it's like actually for child and adolescents um which is a different version like uh, of the community mental health teams because community mental health teams are for ad adults or maybe older adults like in that spectrum whereas um the child and adolescence teams is like under a like under 18 like um teenagers or child's uh, children sorry okay. um, cool yeah. actually thanks for mentioning that that actually makes a lot of sense and you know what we found in our experience as well is that i mean obviously life is very stressful now and even i mean for children i mean this definitely seems to be an increase in you know, like anxiety and, and I suppose like us growing up, you know, obviously everyone was stressed out about that, but mm -hmm. you know, it seems to be more so now, you know, I think with technology as well, maybe just the world, you know, it seems to be. So I don't know in the UK if that's the case, um, but definitely in South Africa, we started seeing a lot more of those, a lot more practitioners, you know, struggling with, well, not struggling, but, but essentially, you know, dealing with children with anxiety and, and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, with also COVID in last years, it's really went up. Like um, mm. research shows that it became like third times, four times higher. Um, the anxiety and health anxiety, and also with um, also like with school kids or people going to universities or high schools, they really find it like harder because like um, because of that stress. Like some of them still feels like they cannot adapt back to the. Um, hybrid or in-person system uh, so it was really traumatic for a lot of people and even before COVID I think uh, it was really stressful and it depends also on like you say the country and culture I think some countries go through a lot and um, also as a word we go through a lot right now and mm -hmm. with COVID but also based on the culture some cultures might be like if somebody has a for example problem that is considered as a taboo or is like um not talk being talked about in the culture then it's really harder or maybe like some research show, so showed that in for example eastern societies like um it's um, some of people don't even tend to go to practitioners because they feel like it's um not okay as for their culture they also like the research showed that um, men tend to get diagnosed less in in internationally with BPD because they tend to go less because of stomatizing feeling stomatized like they are really afraid of someone stigmatize them mm. because of going to therapy so it still goes on from generation to generation like even now a days it's it's the case resource shows so I think it's also about having that um idea of like going to counseling is normal and like it's acceptable and people tend to be sometimes upset and that's okay i think some cultures are less accepting of being upset and because being like coming from like turkey i know like sometimes 
when people are really upset, they are really scared to say that. And even some psychologists get upset and burn out. So actually, one of the good parts is like our course um, requires personal therapy. So it actually acknowledges that therapists also go through hard times. And it's good that to have self-care and it's like not a, it shouldn't be stigmatizing. Whereas, for example, when I... Uh, say people initially uh, where I come from that I need to attend personal therapy and if I don't say it's for my course it is for my course but they find it a bit odd because they think that oh why a psychologist needs therapy but I think actually it's a part of self-care also and it's good that um, in the UK I feel like it's less stigmatized Mm -hmm. and getting a bit less stigmatized each day hopefully with um, um, lots of research and and maybe advertisement just maybe research like showing people that it's okay like um to attend to psychotherapy without labeling people and i think one of the parts that i wanted to because i have like more like a clinical background but i am doing uh, the counseling um psychology now like the doctorate so I think because I felt like it's less diagnosing and more accepting that's also why I kind of wanted to I really like the counseling psychology perspective and it's really integrative mm. like it's um CBT like more like um, I think more like empirical structure based um approaches I mean all of them are empirical but CBT is more structured whereas um person centered therapy is less structured so it's good that it actually combines all of them together and because some patients like clients um tend to go with a more structured um therapies because they tend to like it's better with their personality their um shims their like um the way they were like um, they became like they learn things they they just may really like structure whereas some people find it really overwhelming mm. also depending on their attachment and worldview so it's good to actually combine them together um which is a little bit different than clinical perspective um so I think with clinical psychology, it's like we still, we, as a constant psychologist, um, like future counseling psychologist, we still tend to diagnose people, but not like in clinical psychologist view, because clinical psychology is more like just formulation and diagnosis. Whereas with counseling, we really believe that um, the therapeutic trust and that relationship also changes the person. So it's actually all about empathy and being there and, being available and like practicing self-care when needed or even constantly because it really affects the therapist's ability and competence like um, it's easier easier to I think get burned out and even easier nowadays in like this where it is like becoming very stressful uh, yeah. So, yeah yeah I mean I agree with you completely um I think for a therapist, I mean, you are the tool as in, you know, your skills, your knowledge, your time, you know, you as a person. So you want that tool to be, you know, performing at its best. And I think that's why the supervision, that's why the, your own therapy, uh, that's why the time off, you know, you mentioned mindfulness, the whole thing, but I think, you know, it's really important uh, because I think also empathy becomes difficult if you if you are stressed out and you are tired and you are, you know, like burnt out, I mean, it can't be difficult. It can't be easy. Um, yeah, it's really important to avoid burnout because then it's really hard to 
um, be there for yourself and also be there for other people. So mm. once you are, I think the also the core of therapy is like some of that things like listening to the clients, um, traumatic experiences could be really difficult. Even like telling supervision, sometimes we 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 always inform if it's distressing content to even like our supervisors because or people maybe they are present in the MDT room or, or meetings because like it can be really actually stressing to uh, listen even and because we also need to empathize with them to understand that it's even like a harder work um which could lead to easily to burnout and also with doing the doctorate i think the, the element is like they always even in interviews they warned about and asked about burnout because it's even i guess maybe easier when you are also doing the doctorate um because also there is like assignments and other research going on um so it's really important to actually self-care and also not stigmatize that therapy like even I think it's really nice to have supervision and personal therapy and it's I feel really glad that it's a like it's a requirement here so um, we feel more encouraged and more less stigmatized about attending those because I know lots of people don't because they feel stigmatized um, yeah. in different countries and settings or maybe just a different course and stuff like that yeah i think so i mean i think i mean uh yeah i think the world is changing but it's changing very slowly and i think especially with that uh and i think um i, I said it in previous shows but you know if you could if you could be confident enough to tell your boss that i'm going for a therapy session now and i can't make that meeting <laughs> you know i think we're probably gonna get there as a society but i don't think that's you know anytime soon i think yeah it's, yeah you know most people are like you know, they're okay with it. But I mean, the initial reaction from most people is always like, what's wrong with you? Why are you going for therapy? You know, yeah. it's like, rather than it's self-care or it's growth or <laughs> personal development, you know, none of those come up in the <laughs> conversations. Um, yeah. But um, I think you, you mentioned it a little bit now, but in your own words, Rosie, what is, what is a clinical psychologist and how does a clinical psychologist help someone with borderline personality disorder just so that we get it very clear you know in terms of you know like, how it works yeah clinical or um counseling uh, psychologist i think um like they're both a bit different but i could um briefly tell about both of them like um with a like counseling psychologists or like trainee counseling psychologists it's usually um with tests um so we tend to uh, refer like the gp first refers the person if um it's necessary to the community mental health team or child and adolescent mental health services, depending on their age. And then there is like assessment done, which is um, based on the DSM um, criteria. Uh, so if they say yes to five of them, or they tend to have, or they have the borderline personality disorder. And then there is also another test called MSI, McLean Screening Instrument, BPD. So it's also like a 10 item measure measurement test for screening BPD. And if they get seven, then they're generally, it's a valid clinical cutoff for BPD. So they could be diagnosed. And it's like a person likely to meet with the criteria of BPD if they get seven um, out of 10. Um, and 
for like depending on the severity and person and um i guess the availability of services um they tend to get either dialectical behavior therapy as in groups or they tend to get shame therapy um but um i think in the uk it's usually dbt um so usually mental health teams do practice dbts um and there is also mentalization based therapy which is less common um, it's a type of talk therapy that helps them to identify their own thoughts and feelings and getting another perspective um, and it emphasizes thinking before reacting so more like um, dealing with that emotional side of BP people with BPD and how to maybe prevent reacting and thinking more logically before or less um, emotionally before that um, I think that's for the psychology, like clinically and counseling psychologists to diagnose and work with that MBPT. Okay. I mean, you summarize that perfectly. And I think it's very clear in my mind now also how the system works in, in terms of the UK. Um, and I mean, if I just change the channel a little bit and ask, um, so if we know someone in the family that's obviously got the diagnosis, um, how do we help a loved one like that? Maybe they don't have the diagnosis, but they listen to Rosie now and they said, um, actually, maybe the one thing we do have to cover is, you know, the, if you did know that offhand, if you don't, that's okay as well. But you mentioned like five things, you know, the five symptoms that someone would need to have or the nine, you know, in terms of the DSM-5. So maybe we can touch on that just now. But um, is there any way that we can support a loved one? But, I mean, other than saying, you know, you need to go and speak to Rosie for therapy or you need to go and speak to your community health group. Um, is there anything else that springs to mind? Yeah, I think it's uh, about like being really patient with the person because there could be really challenging and not being judgmental. And it's about really being calm and consistent because with people who have experiencing BPD, it's um, also during adult um, adolescence, uh, they... Um, really want consistency they really need assurance they needed always someone to be there and when they panic maybe as parents or friends um usually parents like it's really important to be there and um because they sometimes don't show it outside they really panic indoors and so it's like as parents it's really about also giving them the attention they need but also setting clear boundaries because if we are a friend of them or if we are like also parents they could get really intense sometimes so it's actually setting a little bit like clear but smaller maybe boundaries it could be really helpful but also giving maybe a rationale for that like saying why it's necessary and making sure that they get attention support they need and um we could remind them of their personal traits because they tend to be really negative sometimes about their self and which causes um leads to self-harm so reminding them just how uh, positive uh, some of their traits are how um, acceptable they are and nice they are it could really help and learning their triggers is also important i guess like um if specific thing triggers um the person um and as a caregiver or as a friend it's really important to have it in mind and maybe avoiding and if it's necessary talk about maybe shifting the perspective and speech like a little bit less making it less judgmental more being like very mindful of that trigger point and trying maybe sometimes not to cover it as much and maybe providing distractions like if for example they 
tend to drink a lot or they tend to do maybe see people becoming really abusive to them like making sure that they get the support they need maybe encouraging them to get to psychotherapy services um so always making sure about like their safety and how okay they are um, without like becoming really um like um, I think without becoming really bossy it's mm. like always taking care and tracking things and also depending on their age um I think it's ad the adolescence um, period is like the they, the research says it's the most intense and problematic time so maybe my, being mindful of that also um <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah my little girl is uh yeah she's 14 and uh, we were talking about like school, you know, like school is like so difficult around that time as well, yeah. you know, like high school. And, uh, you know, like the, num the number of subjects that they do as well, you know, we never do that at varsity or at uni, you know, we don't do the number of, of subjects that they do. So it's actually quite a stressful time all rounded, you know, for them. So I'm so glad you mentioned all of those points. I really like the triggers idea as well. It's almost like us as loved ones knowing what the triggers are so we can help them when those triggers happen. I think I haven't heard anyone mention it like that, which is really cool. Um, yeah, I think that's also us being more aware of it. And yeah. in terms of resources uh, or books or anything that you kind of came across, I mean, obviously, we always always recommend academic journals. You know, you mentioned a few, you know, research papers. Um, but most people never read that, you know, they, they never go into, you know, research gate or, you know, uh, you know, and, and look at academic journals. Uh, is there anything else that you came across that could probably help someone? Yeah, uh, I think uh, for, um, for like, um, general, there is like, um, um, British Psychological Society a paper, which is not like actual papers, but it's just um, talking about people who went through that. So it's like really actually fun to read without like involving research or maybe more deductive content, which could be actually a bit boring for people out of academia. Um, that's a really good, they have like annual um, uh, like in your magazines but more like scientific but also fun to read once uh, also for a book I think more specified on borderline personality disorder there is one with Otto Kernbeck which Otto Kernbeck wrote called borderline conditions and pathological narcissism Um he he also um like he had uh, contributed a lot in the borderline field uh, Otto Kernberg so it's like a very nice book and then he has one called severe personality disorders which also mentions BPD in really great detail and psychotherapic strategies um it's the same book also there is like if they want to maybe read something um less intense more like um less deductive more like a story based one there is called uh, someone uh, some book called i hate you don't leave me um so it's also about understanding bpd by mm -hmm. gerald kreisman and hal strauss mm, and nice title yeah for people who maybe be dating or having a relationship or married with someone with bpd there is one called loving someone with bpd or even like parents could read that uh, i think it's about how to manage how to be there for them and it's from Sherry Y. Manning. Um, I think that's also a good book for people who likes more less deductive content and more like story-based books. And the first two books are I mentioned are more like a, um, 
academia research-based um, still not like really research but like showing the core and symptoms of the things um to understand it better mm. okay i love that uh, i think it's like with everything hey i mean like life's difficult but at least if you that's the one good thing about labeling is like if, at least if you know what it is then you know how to get help but i mean i think you mentioned some amazing resources there i'm sure anyone listening to this you know we'll take note of that and then obviously then you know you, how you can get even more help because i think even listening to practitioners like yourself is great but you need like le- maybe a little bit more information sometimes about what's going through the head of you know yeah. just someone going through it and um, i like that um and from a practitioner point of view rosie is there anything I mean, you're very knowledgeable on the topic. I mean, is there anything that you would point or courses that you would point practitioners to, to say, mm-hmm. if you want to do upskill more on borderline personality disorder, uh, this is how you would do that? Um, yeah, I think with practitioners, it's also important to be patient. And also if they're working mental health community teams, um, because there is like a multidisciplinary team, there tend to be sometimes very different options uh, or, opinions sorry about a person so um for example and maybe a care um someone who's a nurse or um um care coordinator might have a different idea uh, whereas um psychologists might have a different idea so it's actually about like being really patient because sometimes if the clients are really complicated i think in mental health teams um there is also a way of like if they don't attend, they are just discharged very quickly. But maybe also being mindful that they're really fragile and a very uh, vulnerable group, client group. So um, always trying to be there for them and avoiding their triggers um, because that can, could also distress um, people's, people who work in the practice. And I think I believe it's a bit harder to manage in a multidisciplinary team by what other people also say. And my own opinion on that would be like um, just making sure we are there for them without like getting really distressed about it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I like yeah. that. And and from your experience, would uh, maybe maybe let's go back to the symptoms now. And then I think we do have to start closing up soon. But uh, on the symptoms, is there something you know from the DSM five that you can remember, just, just so that people can take something tangible away, so they can say, uh, you know, he has this, he has that, he has that. I should get be getting worried now and go back and listen to this episode in a little bit more detail. Yeah, actually, there is like. Um, there is it's um divided in four um areas uh, so one of them is emotional instability so we also say like a psychological terms uh, affective dysregulation and impulsive behavior and intense but unstable relationship with others also having disturbed patterns of thinking and pat- uh, perception like perceptual distortions or cognitive distortions so for the DSM criteria it's actually summarized as um, chronic feelings of emptiness, um, intense anger, problems controlling anger, and it's also in a period like it's very intense and feelings of dis- dissociation, like feeling like um, such as feeling cut off from oneself, observing oneself from outside some persons outside of body, like feeling like they're outside of their body, and feeling of unreality, maybe um, being really panicky about it self-harming such as like cutting it's a really important sign 
Um, and then they have, um, according to DSM, one of the other criteria is intense and highly variable moods, like which episodes like lasting from an hour to a few days, which is also like a different um, in a way than be borderline, uh, sorry, um, bipolar disorder. So it's uh, good to differentiate it from bipolar, actually, because you know, it's really um, overlaps. Also the impulsive and, and dangerous behaviors such as substance abuse, reckless driving, unsafe sex or binge eating. Um, and uh, also if these behaviors happen mostly during times of evaluated mood or en energy, they might be, be symptoms of mood disorder, but not borderline personality disorder. So it's really important to be mindful, just not to misdiagnose. Um, and I, I, they tend to have a, as a criteria also a distorted and unstable self-image or sense of self. And unstable and intense pattern with friends, family, relationships, loud ones, and they afford, um, they make effort to avoid real or perceived abandonment, such as plunging headfirst into relationships or ending them just as quickly. Like once it starts, they kind of avoid and and end them, even though they are healthy and nice relationships. Okay, thanks so much for that. I think that's a good reference point. You know, for anyone, I think it's probably one of the crucial points of the show, you know, to to see how would you, how, how, yeah, you can't really go label someone or diagnose, but definitely in your own mind, you know, knowing whether you need to get help for the person. Um, and um, I think my last question, Rosie, is, is, I mean, obviously, we try to prepare for the show, but is there anything that you thought around this topic of borderline personality disorder that I should have asked you that I didn't? Um like if there anything i want to add or sorry i couldn't hear um, yeah is there anything that you would like to add uh yeah i think it's um uh, we summarize it very in a very nice way um but i think i just want to add that um if people want to learn maybe more about it as a person if they have some like a daughter or a friend who has bpd they could also, or if they want to, maybe there are practitioners that get want to learn more. They could um, attend on CPT courses with cemetery uh, or DPT because or mentalization based therapy, and um, because they are really nice uh, approaches. And there is also composition based therapy, which is a third uh, wave, uh, very recent therapy. And um, I also attended a couple of sessions by BPS. It's really also nice to practice it on someone's own too like it's a really accept accepting and um, a very um loving approach to oneself and other people so i believe that it could be also really nice to maybe attend to those courses if some people are interested and want to learn more or reading books which we mentioned it's because even they attend to psychotherapy sessions um going back and reading about it could really help people who has a relative who has a BPD or a friend or even themselves it, it helps them to understand themselves better um yeah I think that's um what I wanted to add but apart from that I felt like we really covered it nicely um in a very detailed way okay cool yeah and, and I think full disclaimer I mean we could never cover borderline personality disorder in one hour <laughs> you know that would be really uh arrogant but, um, you know, I think it's just to get a sense of what it is. And I think, obviously, you pointed us to 
tons of amazing resources, Rosie. So I think taking it from there and hopefully this just sparks an interest or, you know, conversation and then we go from there. But thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate it too. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode. Yeah.